Chains A Counterpoint to a Christmas Carol Written and read by Ian Hales Chapter 12 High Spirits It was one of those streets that seemed to be always on the way to somewhere, or on the way back from somewhere else, rather than having enough gumption to be a destination in its own right. And some of the businesses that were seated in this place were of the eclectic kind, and made for strange, if somehow fitting, bedfellows. A tobacconist's neck to a smokehouse, an undertaker's across the road from a public house, a pie shop beneath a barber's. Here, too, it was Christmas time again. All the shops were doing a roaring trade, and all were lit up and sparkling. Scrooge spied a certain warehouse door, and sprang across the roadway towards it, with the improbable cry of, Fezziwigs! Fezziwigs! The white lady did not follow her charge immediately, but looked down at Marley. Sweet one, you know I love you dearly, but I simply will not be prompted, she said, as her hands reached to the back of her neck, and started fiddling with the chain that held Marley. "'What do you mean to do with me, madam?' he asked, fearing that he might, small as he was, be easily dropped down a drain or lashed to a pebble never to move again. "'I mean to let you away for a while, and therefore let me to my business,' she said. "'You're a darling, but you're really not supposed to be here, and I'll catch all kinds of hell if old Pantaloon's redemption goes up the swanny because I let you along on this little trip. <laughs> I think I'll have that.' She plucked the candle from his hands. "'Can't have you playing at Willow-the-Wisp,' she said. "'Now off and away with you.' With this, she let loose of Marley's chain, and with a light flick sent him off and floating into the breeze. Like a gossamer spider he was, drifting with the air currents and in the wakes of passing people. As the form of the white lady retreated, he heard her say, "'I'll call for you when I'm ready, my sweet.' before she disappeared into the warm and inviting door to the warehouse after Scrooge's animated form. He could have panicked being set adrift like this, helpless and chaotic, but rather he found himself enjoying the giddy ride of it all, latching onto one person's shadow and then flying off into another. At one point he was swept up in the helter-skelter pelt of a young boy, improbably dressed in careworn clothes but sporting a top hat, as he ran full tilt through the crowd. Marley could see that the boy was being pursued by a beadle and attendant others, but that these fine gentlemen had no hopes of catching up the spry little thief, for little thief he was undoubtedly, whose legs were younger, whose eye was keener, and whose heart was lighter than any of his would-be captors. The boy darted down passages and squeezed between stalls. He tripped upstairs, touching only the bare minimum to propel him, and skipped along walls, singing a jaunty tune as he went. Eventually, he slowed down settled and stopped by a blackened and soot-covered wall in the area known by the fragrant name of Saffron, but which was less than fragrant itself, as it backed onto the open sewer that was the fleet ditch. The boy sat and started eating the mass of cake that he had been carrying, which evidently was the goods that had caused him to be pursued. Dark and moist it was, with a heady aroma of spiced rum coming from it. There was a whistle from the darkness, a particular whistle it was, two odd little chirrups, then a low note. The boy answered with a whistle of his own. This time a small snatch of tune came, 
and he called out, Bates, come get your Christmas feast. No other coves, though, unless I want a tanning. Marley felt the shadow shift, and one of them dislodge itself and walk towards the boy who was smiling through handfuls of dried fruit. Marley floated up and away from the boys as they laughed and feasted. He was borne on the wind once more and traversed up the length of the blackened wall and to the place where the roof of this building might have been. I say might have been because the roof was barely in attendance, blazed away by some great fire or so it seemed. The remnants of the struts stood starkly against the winter sky, looking, Marley thought, like the blackened limbs of some great barren winter tree. He heard a lusty voice from within the scorched interior, singing in a stout baritone. The sound held some kind of magnetism for him, and he drifted he knew not how, down its crotchets and quavers, over its sharps and under its flats, to its source deep in the charred and ruined building. Huzzah, huzzah, in our good town, the bread shall be white and the liquor be brown. So here, my old fellow, I drink to thee, and to the health of each other tree. And so it was that Marley saw, around a central column that served as their solstice totem, the figures of ghosts of all kinds and shapes, sitting on blackened barrels, lounging on piles of ash, or simply draped upon the ground whilst one of their number, evidently one of a musical bent, bowed rather unsteadily before them and took his applause from the song. A fine mist hung in the air all around, though Marley had seen no fog upon the street up until now in his ramblings through the past. It lent to the air a suitably spooky ambience that was entirely in keeping with the gathered throng. As the applause died away, the tiny form of Marley drifted and settled on a charcoal beam just above the throng. He gathered his chains around him once more. He had to admit, he rather liked this feeling of being minute in relation to the world. He felt that to be light enough to be carried along by the whims of the world, and yet small enough to go by unnoticed, lent him a certain omnipotence. And in his omnipotence as an and in his omnipotence as an observer, he watched the party below. Now, it must be said at this juncture that Marley had witnessed a great many of his compatriots in death since the beginning of his preternatural rambles, some inconsolable in grief, and others who seemed to have resigned themselves to death in such a humour as to make the best of it. But never had he in all the last seven years ever perceived a spirit who was drunk. Yet that's what he saw now. Make no bones about it. The convivial throng were utterly pie-eyed, as the expression is. If indeed the reality of things had been that the nature of ghosts were more of the white sheet with two holes cut in it variety, then each and every one of this merry band would have been three or more of them to the wind. The singer staggered off his makeshift stage, a flat-backed brewer's cart that was hobbled and wheelless, with boxes piled up to provide access. It was on these boxes that the singer passed another ghost, who playfully tugged upon the rope that was strung around his neck, sending him skidding down off the last crate with barely enough balance to save himself from the ground. 
Careful of yourself, Brown Hills, said the one who took the stage. A very good swing at it, I'd say. A good swing indeed. And to emphasise his point, the ghost mimed a rope around his own neck and made as if to hang limply from it, eyes bulging and tongue lolled to comic if grotesque effect. The knight's host was of the Regency mould, and indeed bore more than a little passing resemblance to the priggish prince himself, a man of high fashion, with his powdered wig and brocaded jacket, he held in his hand some ghostly glass filled with what Marley took to be liquor of some kind. In fact, upon further inspection, Marley saw that all of the gathered throng were so furnished. The ghost of a glass. The spirit of a spirit. How could this be possible? And furthermore, continued the Regency, I feel we should raise a glass to our benefactor, Mr. Henry Muir whom we have to thank for not only our current benefit. At this, he raised his glass in the air, but also, I believe, some of our esteemed company. A ragged cheer surfaced from the throng, emanating from a tight knot of company who were, it must be said, very tight. Indeed, they seemed to be by far the most drunk of all the ghosts gathered there. An odd bunch they were, all dressed in mourning, as if they'd thought the condition of being dead was not quite morbid enough for them, but they had to accessorise the occasion. Were it not for Mr Muir's continuing catastrophes, why, we may have to resort to the leavings of plum puddings again this year, but as it is, with the fire in the brewery just this last week, there are hogsheads enough for all, although I'll do my best to drink any of the lot of you out of it, or my name's not Fanny. "'Nor not the name of me aunt either,' said the Regency. "'So it came to Marley's understanding, and so it should do to you, "'that when a good drink is set into the fire, "'the ghost of it lingers in the atmosphere, "'and therefore lends itself to the disposal "'of any supernatural entities who are present. "'Perhaps this is why, at the Christmas feast, "'we think it convivial to bear a more liberal hand "'when firing the pudding, in order to share the cheer.' with any unseen guests that may have passed by for a howdy-do over the festive season. Anyhow, a fine party they made of it. Whatever the provenance of the wine, a fine party they made of it, with guests drifting in from all arts and parts and of all the social classes. A flood of royalty processed in, one after the other, from the direction of the Tower of London and straightway began bickering, good-naturedly, on the subject of who should rightly bow to who. A garrison of soldiers, made up of men from all eras, took to roughhousing with each other in the full view of a slew of consumptive ladies, who, taking their cues in their turn, duly swooned with feigned horror and barely concealed delight at the antics. Sailors, their pallors green and bloated from drowning, shimmied up into the rafters and festooned them with ghostly seaweed to lend a festive air to the room. And children, too many children, half-starved, looking with eyes that had seen too much pain in their short lives, nevertheless ran between the legs of the more mature company and nipped at the unattended glasses of alcohol, laughing with undisguised glee. It did Marley good to see such jollity within the hearts of his brethren. But where were their chains, he thought? Where were their fetters? His jealousy stuck to him and irritated like a piece of grit in an eyeball.
Then a character that everyone called Lucky drew up a spectral barrel of sherry wine, stood upon it and thumped out a rhythm with his foot whilst playing away on a squeeze box. This was the cue for all to dance, and the floor was cleared. Up and down they danced, kicking up their heels and rollicking loud enough to wake the living. The regency known as Fanny took to the dance floor and danced with each of King Henry VIII's wives in turn, calling out, Divorced, beheaded, died! Divorced, beheaded, survived! In turn, to which one of them, a stern German matron, took mock umbrage, saying, I survived as well, well, <laughs> until I died! And all fell about in laughter. The soldiers danced with the consumptive ladies, and the sailors did jigs with the children. They danced the cotillion, the lancers, the haymakers, the eightstone reel, and a hundred others, and oh, how Marley wished that he might join them, but feared that his miniature stature would make this impossible. It was because of this that Marley did not notice that one of the sailors in his cups had climbed the truss upon which Marley was himself alighted, and was vigorously jigging upon the same. Now, I know I have said that ghosts have little substance to them, but though they may have little, they do have some, and that substance can become multiplied when their passions are high. No doubt you have heard of the exploits of poltergeists and the like. So it was that the combined dancing of the sailor and the relative weakness of the beam conspired to make a crack, then a snap, and then all at once a mad slam-bam tumble-down of sailor, beam, marley and all into the awaiting congregation. The dance abated not one moment. The timber was danced around, the sailor was borne aloft by his shipmates, and marley landed halfway in and halfway out of a glass of drink. He pulled himself up and out and sat on the rim of the glass and got himself comfortable. Being in among the party was even more fascinating than observing it, the very air seemed to be intoxicating, filled as it was with that glorious mist that now he was amongst it, Marley could experience. It had a smell like frost on iron, and yet a measure of roses. It tasted like wine and tears, though whether tears of grief or happiness, Marley could not tell. And Marley swam in it. He took a moment to study the ghost holding the glass. She was a larger lady from the party of mourners, ruddy of face and quick to laughter, and like her compatriots, indeed, like the whole of the gathering, she wore no chains. Again, his mind went back to the puzzle of the missing chains. He'd assumed that Linton, the white lady, the king, and all had no chains because they were engaged on a spiritual commission of some kind. But these common or garden spirits of the past were on no such contract. And so, by Marley's reckoning, should have been bedecked in the same style as he. It was as he looked, and on the very edge of his perception, that he saw, around the good lady's neck, some of the mist start to knot and coalesce. This was linked to a certain sadness coming over her face, a shadow of some memory passing by. As he continued to watch, he saw the mist start to form shapes very much like the links of chains bound around the lady's body. But the process, and Marley's observance of this process, was cut short by the lady lifting the glass and tipping the amount of the contents into her mouth. The contents that now included Marley. For so intent was he in his studies that when she had begun to move the glass he lost his seating on the edge and tumbled down into the liquor, 
So as she went to drink, he was taken with the liquid towards that great gaping mouth. He fought against the tide as best he could, chains barring him from any great shows of swimming prowess. But nevertheless, he was drawn back until he thought it inevitable he would be consumed with the spirit. But just at the moment he thought all was lost, the great thirst of the giant mourner must have been slaked, and she righted the glass. Floating there in the liquor, Marley observed that as she swallowed, the chains that had been forming round the lady's neck dissipated with a sound like children's laughter and became mist once more. It took a moment for Marley to realise what had happened, and another moment for him to realise that his position was one where even a relatively small amount of drink left in a glass, say, would be a glut to others. He drank. He drank greedily and he drank deep. Swimming about in that glass, it was a sweet, sickly brew with hints of smoke and timber. And to be truthful, it wouldn't have mattered to Marley if the taste had been as foul as that of a cesspool. He would have drunk it down with glee. He gathered his chains up around him and eyed them, treading liquor, waiting and hoping for any sign of pop, 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 pop. Four links on the ends of his chains evaporated into nothing like the rise and break of champagne bubbles. He drank more, pop, 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 and then again more. Marley drank until every one of his chains burst and popped and became mist. I'm sure you're aware of how it feels to take off a pair of shoes that you've been wearing for slightly too long, or some piece of clothing that was a little too tight. The relief and release of it can be immense. So imagine if that had been extended to seven years of constriction. So much so that it sometimes seemed that the shoes or jacket or whatever had become a part of you, and therefore the pain and discomfort had also become such a part of you that it simply played as a constant background to your existence. Marley stretched and groaned with the pleasure of it all. He was free of the chains. He was free... He climbed up onto the rim of the glass rather unsteadily and gave out a cheer. He felt so light and he wanted to dance. He wanted to take the plump old lady that taught him this trick into his arms and dance her around the room till she exploded in peals of laughter. He wanted to clap the regency on the back and stamp along with the music of Lucky Squeezebox. He wanted to run with the children and goose the consumptive ladies. He wanted to celebrate the freedom and rejoice in it, drunk as he was. But the party was now dispersing. The regency stood at the doorway to the yard, shaking hands with departing royalty and children alike, the mood quietening down into that melancholic happiness that one has at the end of a holiday season. People wished each other well. They kissed and hugged and went on their way. Marley could see that as they left the yard, the mist followed each ghost like spectral mufflers, piece by piece dividing itself out and for some already forming itself into the shapes of chains and restraints. After a time, the only person left in the yard was the Regency, 
who had finally bid goodbye to the lot of their guests, Lucky, who with heavy step rolled his ghostly barrel down in the direction of the Clerkenwell. The Regency drained his glass, bid goodbye to the empty space, and vanished away, leaving Marley alone, dancing on the rim of a glass and looking up into the sky at the stars that frosted the ice-cold sky. This reverie was punctured by a voice. You're drunk, it said in an amused tone. Marley turned on his heel to find the white lady, bending so that her head was at the same level as the glass. Behind her was Scrooge, who was dancing in much the same fashion as Marley had been just a moment ago. Yes, yes, I am, said Marley. You are a very observant person, madam, and if I may say, a very lovely one too. You drunken mop, she said, scooped him up and placed him in the bowl of the candle holder, which, along with its candle, had regained its former dimensions, so now towered over Marley. And no chains too, she continued. Oh, you'll regret that. Where, where, where are we going next, Marley said, as he half stumbled, half danced around the candle. One last stop, then home, she said. Marley stamped a truculent foot and stuck out his lip in mock indignation. No, I refuse, he slurred. You're a admirable. You, madam, are lovely company, and I would tarry with you a while longer. Our time grows short. Quick, sit down before you fall down, she said, not unkindly. I should imagine that the world is spinning quite fast enough at the moment for you, and the warmth from the candle should sober you up in short order. A thin mist played around Marley's throat in a distracted fashion. The white lady, smiling down at Marley, walked up to the terpsichorely challenged Scrooge, took his hand in hers, and gave whatever subtle clue she needed to signify a change of scene. Chains, a counterpoint to a Christmas carol, is a production of the Dark Side of the Spoon podcast. Its copyright is to Ian Hales, so share it as much as you like, but don't copy it and don't claim it's yours. That would be really naughty, and Krampus might come and get you if you do that. Why not go and join the Chains, a counterpoint to a Christmas carol group, or indeed the Dark Side of the Spoon group on Facebook? Get involved, tell us what you think, and... See you later on the dark side of the spoon.